0: Okay, good afternoon, my watch says exactly (laughs) 1.30, so uh, this talk I hope will be also complementary to the other, a little bit different perspective, more history, a bit less uh, sociology, and also I front-end loaded my talks, you can get them out of the way and get to the fun things uh, later in the seminar and also to establish that we begin and end on time, which, as I mentioned, is really important uh, to me. makes the seminar so much more enjoyable. So I want to think about freedom uh, in a historical perspective and overcome a number of prejudices that are common, especially among uh, contemporary Americans. Uh, A lot of people seem to think that the history of politics and freedom is something like the following. We had this old thing called the divine right of kings. And then we got democracy, I don't know, like 1960, and now it's now. (laughs) And the past was medieval or middle evil, as I've heard students say. Uh, And it was a fight between Catholics and Lutherans. And none of it makes any sense. And you hear that kind of talk all the time, even among people who should know better. Madeleine Albright, I think was one of the dimmer figures in American history, (laughs) uh, had said on a number of occasions things that revealed a lack of historical awareness. I recall when she was at the United Nations debating sanctions on Iraq. And she said, after all, we're not the country with all these weapons of mass destruction. Wow. She wasn't aware that the United States has more than the rest of the planet combined. Uh, but she also defined the Taliban, which is evil, and she, she got that. She understood the evil idea. Uh, but she said they were, they were medieval. Said, well, that's actually not true. The idea of an Islamic state or an Islamic republic is not a medieval idea it's not even very much of an Islamic idea. It is a 20th century invention. It is a modern ideological construct not rooted in Islamic history. And it, it, Most important figures are Syed Qutb and the Ayatollah Khomeini who introduced this idea of an Islamic republic. And other Islamic thinkers have been very strongly critical of that, such as Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani or um, <clears throat> uh Abdul wahib el effendi who said, you have put the state above God when you did that. You are worshipping the state when you should be worshipping God. So there's nothing medieval about that. Medieval and her language just seems to mean I don't like it. <laughs> but we'll try to use language a bit more uh, precisely. Now, this idea that there's the divine right of kings and then comes something, liberty, democracy, something is upside down because also the divine right of kings is not a medieval idea. It's not a particularly ancient idea. It is also a modern idea. It's one against which people who believed in liberty were struggling, liberty and the rule of law. So in some sense, many popular understandings of history are backwards. I think many people get their ideas of history from the Saturday morning cartoons which is why they think humans and dinosaurs lived at the same time. seen so many Flintstones episodes. <clears throat> uh, and I'm going to present a rather different perspective that I think is uh, more reflective of the development of the institutions of liberty. The first point is, why is history so important to me? And one of my favorite historians, Tacitus, in his great annals of uh, Rome, talked about the purpose of history. It's not just, to relate at length every motion, only such as were conspicuous for excellence or notorious for infamy. History's highest function, to let no worthy action be uncommemorated and to hold out the reprobation of posterity as a terror to evil words and deeds. For him, history had a moral function as well. It was to remember the people who were worth remembering because they did noble and good things, and also to remember those who were wicked villains. So there's a fundamental moral function to history that I think is, should be revived and was quite important for Tacitus and also Lord Acton, if you're acquainted with that great uh, figure, <clears throat> a classical liberal historian, famous for the one thing people can quote him for, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That was summation of his lifetime of the study of history, was the corrupting influence of power. And he was very much influenced by Tacitus in this. Now, I'm very suspicious of big theories of history. You read people, they say, this was inevitable. Uh, Presentism is always constant. The view that somehow the present was inevitable. Everything that preceded inevitably led up to what we have now. This is not true. It's a fantasy. Human history is full of accident and contingency and mistake and screw ups uh, and things that just could have been different. I don't think there's a necessity to history as the way it's normally presented. Everything is seen leading to the next, the next, next, and then what we have now. History is full of uh, strange events that, that could have turned out differently. So I'm very suspicious also of grand philosophies of history. It's the unfolding of this principle or that principle. We're acquainted with a few names in the philosophy of history, such as Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, that it was the realization of reason and the world, blah, blah, blah. I think this is all bunk, frankly. Uh, History is a little bit closer to um, the way it was portrayed by uh, Sir Thomas Plucknett, a great British legal historian. And I remember a a student of his, a man named Harold um, Berman, who's a great legal historian in his own right, he said that when uh, Sir Thomas would open his lectures in the history of the common law, very dramatically English gentlemen, he would say, in the history of the common law, first, one thing happened, and then another. <laughs> that it wasn't, he wanted to stress, sometimes it's just one damn thing after another. It's not the unfolding, the inevitable unrolling of a kind of a, a pattern or a carpet. Nonetheless. I think there are a few conditions that are propitious or favorable to the development of liberty, which is what I want to talk about. And the first is the presence in the culture of some kind of a higher law. And by that, I mean something very simple. Law is not just an expression of will. Now, there are commonly, you'll hear in philosophy of law courses, will theories of law, that law is an expression of will, and usually the will of the ruler the one with power, it's a command, do this, do that. But the alternative view of the idea of a higher law, law is something other than will. And there are two ways at least to understand this, and they've been summarized by various thinkers with two convenient cities, Jerusalem and Athens. Jerusalem is associated with the idea of revealed religion So again, it doesn't actually mean just the place, but the idea that it's a city in which people received revelations from God. And this means that they're somehow not matters of human will. If you think about the story in the Old Testament, as the Christians call it, Moses receives the law and then reveals it to the people. He didn't sit down and say, why don't we do this and this and write it all down. This is the God's law, and the, the Ten Commandments were intended to be binding. There's the famous story in the uh, book of Exodus when Moses leads the people out of their slavery in the land of Egypt. And a very important principle is, is demonstrated in that story that God is transcendent to his creation. And that innovation, the Hebrew innovation, God is not a thing in the world, but somehow transcends his own creation. And that is adopted by other religions that uh, claim to build on Judaism. Uh, And also you can find it usually in a high theological form in other religions as well, such as Hinduism. But God is not a thing in the world, that it's a mistake to think God is this uh, uh, PowerPoint projector when it actually is an Apple computer. Uh, And the story is when the people are led out of their slavery and they're wandering in the desert, Moses goes up to the mountain to have some interaction with God. So if you think about it in contemporary terms, he goes to burningbush.com and gets a, a download of some sort and has some kind of conversation with God that transcends normal human understanding. And the story says, meanwhile, down below, the people say, where's this Moses fellow? What happened to him? He split. And they go to Aaron, and they say, make us gods to go before us like all the other nations. The other nations have gods. what's, what's, What's wrong with us? And in this story, Aaron says, bring me your gold, your silver, your your golden earrings, rather, your bangles. And he melts it, and he makes of it a golden calf. And he says, worship, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And they worship, and they dance, and sacrifice. Meanwhile, up on the mountain, uh, God and Moses are having some kind of a discussion, and God says, behold, this is a stiff-necked people. Uh, leave me alone that my rage may burn hot against them, and I will completely destroy them. But of you, I shall make a great nation. And this, What this means is you'll have a lot of kids. You'll have a big, big family. You will prosper, but the rest I will destroy. Something happens in the story that's really striking and in some ways makes it a uniquely Jewish story, and that is that Moses argues with God, which is... <laughs> Maybe not the first thing that would occur to most people. God, and you argue with them. But Moses has an argument with God. And it says, the Lord repented of the evil he thought to do unto his people. It was really quite striking. Goes back down, bringing the law. But the message is, this golden calf is not God. God is somehow transcendent. And even, as I mentioned, uh, high theological articulations of other religions also talk about manifestations of God in Hinduism and so on. But in some sense, these are just attempts of people to realize God, that there's a fundamentally Godhead that transcends the particular shrine or, or uh, form within which God is, is worshiped. So God isn't just a thing. Now, why is that important politically? Well, what is it many rulers claim? I'm a god. Worship me. And so for the Jews, this is a terrible sin for you to say you're god. It's hard to imagine anything more wicked than making that claim. I am god. And so it establishes a real principle, a limitation on power. And even the people of Israel can be judged and found wanting. So it's not just a collective versus individual power. There's a higher law. So that's a religious formulation. So Jerusalem is a nice shorthand for that. But then philosophically, also, another form compatible with this, think about Athens we associate with philosophy. means the love of wisdom or learning. Science, if you want to put it that way, that's a Latin term. And philosophy is trying to figure out how the world works thinking about it and studying it. So we think about Plato, which, in my opinion, was an intellectual dead end in many ways, because Plato thought that we could deduce everything from knowledge of the good. And it turns out that doesn't work. Aristotle tried to explain this. He said, you know, the problem is the good of the rabbit and the good of the fox are not the same. This is a big problem for Platonic philosophy, that the good is this one thing that illuminates all of being. And Aristotle says, I don't think fox good and rabbit good are the same thing. Fox, if you don't know, foxes eat it. rabbits. <clears throat> uh, Aristotle, in contrast, wants to understand the world systematically. He studied everything. He looked at everything. Why worms pop up in the ground, where mushrooms come from, how turtles swim, why the heavens move in the way that they do everything, including human life. He wanted to study the life of the human being, life of human being and politics, and cities. He assembled with his students the constitutions of all of the cities of the Greek world. I think there were 36 of them. All of them were lost except one, which was redisco- rediscovered in the back of a papyrus in a trash heap. And it turns out that was, for us, the most interesting was the constitution of Athens. So thank God Someone threw that one into that trash tip in, I think it was in Cairo, that was later excavated. And he wants to understand how life works, how things happen. There is what we call a natural law. He has a very nice passage in the Nicomachean Ethics where he talks about fire. And he says, as as a background, everyone knows there are two types of featherless bipeds in the world what we are, featherless bipeds, uh, and they are Greeks and what's the next one? Barbarians. barbarians, exactly, Greeks and barbarians. Barbarian comes from a Greek word barbaroi. They're people if you try to talk to them they just say bar 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 bar. <laughs> they can't talk. Greeks at least you can talk to because they speak Greek. All the other ones are barbaroi. They just just yammer away in that foreign talk, and you can't make any sense of it. And the Greeks had a feeling that they were very superior to the barbaroi. And we have, this has come through to us, the term barbarian is generally a negative term. You wouldn't like to say, I'd like to introduce you to my son-in-law, he's a barbarian. (laughs) Not good. So it's quite a negative term, and it, it was for the Greeks as well. But he says fire does not burn one way in Persia and another way in Greece. There's not Persian fire and Greek fire. And he also talks about in logic there are accidental predicates of a term. So to be pale or dark is an accidental predicate of the term anthropos, human being. You can be a pale human being. Or a dark human being, it doesn't matter, it's accidental. What it means to be a human is to be what he called so on logon, the animal who talks. Or you could say the animal with reason, but more literally, it means the one, the animal who can talk is the human being. <clears throat> and these other things are irrelevant, or if they're, they're not essential characteristics of being a human being. He also talked in the politics about communism. And he really had a very definitive refutation of communism. He said, he was friends with Plato, was a teacher, that you show your friendship when you disagree. It's very important. You're not being a, a traitor or betraying. Now, some people, the followers of Leo Strauss, insist Plato was not a communist. Uh-uh, no, no, no. He was just giving an example to try to explore the human soul. So that's Leo Strauss and Alan Bloom's interpretation. Aristotle actually knew Plato, and he said he was a communist. So which one am I going to believe? So I think Aristotle was probably a more trustworthy source than Leo Strauss or Alan Bloom, although Bloom's a very good translator of Plato. And he criticizes communism. He says the things that are held in common are no, where everyone is responsible, no one is responsible. If it belongs to everyone, it belongs to no one. Everyone gets that. If you've ever lived in a common dorm room, you know, no one washes the dishes. And he got that. He understood that very well. Communism won't work because people will not be responsible for things. And they'll be fighting and squabbling about them all the time as well. So he establishes a branch of what we call the natural law. And not just Aristotle, but many people wrote in this tradition. Now, many people have since interpreted natural law in a very foolish way. They have said, like Lawrence Tribe at Harvard University said, oh, those people believe in natural law, they're religious. First, as if that were a crime. But second, it's the natural law is a religious doctrine. Well, if you think about it for a minute, that can't be right. Natural law versus supernatural law. Religion, you're talking about supernatural law. Natural law is about nature, not about revelation. Although it may be compatible with, with revelation, and that was the key of what St. Thomas Aquinas and others argued. You could know it by faith, or you could know it by reason, but the two would not conflict. So we have the natural law, and the natural law we have highly developed in a modern branch of social science called economics. Here's a very simple statement. If you abolish private property in land, people will eat each other. We know that. It's been done. In Soviet Union and in communist China, there was mass famine, starvation, and cannibalism. That's what happens when you eliminate private property in land. If you print a lot of paper money and you require its use as legal tender, you print lots of it, prices will go up. If you impose price controls, you will create shortages. Right? Those are natural law statements. That's what natural law means. There's nothing religious about it. So there's a higher law that governs human behavior. And second, law is not just made, as we're taught by politicians, I make the law, whatever I say is the law, and we hear this in contemporary American discourse all the time. Uh, Again, um, Rahm Emanuel's, uh, one of his other famous statements, how how much he loved executive orders, he put it very neatly, such a disgraceful statement, stroke of the pen, law of the land, kind of cool, right? Right? That was his philosophy of law. A stroke of the pen, law of the land, kinda cool. And I'm sure all dictators feel that way. It's cool to have arbitrary, unaccountable power. But law can also be discovered, and that's a very important principle. Law is discovered. What the legal process is about doing is finding out what do people do to order their behavior and relations. The common law is about finding out how people do things. What is the law? The law is not imposed on them, it's discovered. It's a very important conceptual difference. Now, if the law were merely made, that's suitable to the idea of the sovereign state. We make the law. If the law is inconvenient to us, we shall unmake the law. It cannot apply to us. That was articulated very clearly in 1598 by King James VI and First, King James VI of Scotland, who in 1603 became King James I of England at the extinction of the Tudor line and the establishment of the Stuart uh, line in England. <coughs> but in 1598, he wrote a book, The True Law of Monarchies, and he says, I have at length proved that the king is above the law king is above the law because he makes the law and he lays out the logic. If the law were to be inconvenient for him, he can unmake it. So therefore, he cannot be subject to the law. But if the law is discovered, the discoverer can be subject to the law. An example from physical laws is fairly clear. Sir Isaac Newton discovers the force law by which two bodies are attracted to each other, which is a force inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. And that is a force law that will generate the elliptical orbits that have been observed and described by Kepler and uh, Tycho Brahe. So he discovers it, but it doesn't follow that Isaac Newton is exempt from it. He could leap into the air and have some really interesting eccentric orbit around the Earth that other things couldn't have. Because he say, "Whoo hoo, I discovered the law. So it doesn't apply to me, it doesn't work that way. And similarly, legal bodies that discover law can also be subject to it in terms of human law. So these, condi- these elements of the intellectual life I think are propitious to liberty. Now you'll notice that we have a lot of this uh, is dominant intellectually now in America. But still, the idea of the discovery of law governs a great deal of our legal processes commercial law, and other areas as well. Now, if you think again about law and freedom, I mentioned very briefly uh, last night why those are so intimately connected. This is a long quote, and in the book you have of mine, I quote it two or three times. You You can find it easily. I think it's one of the greatest things written on this. The end of law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. Where there's no law, there is no freedom. And I think that's very important. Contemporary libertarians sometimes will say, oh, law, we have too much law. When law grows, freedom recedes. And I think that's a conceptual error. They're confusing law with command. I think we have too many commands from our government. Do this, do that, do the other thing. Don't do that, this is forbidden, that is forbidden. But that's not the same as law. Law is about rules to govern human behavior. As I said, Lon Fuller defined it very neatly that law is the enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. And we can see law emerging around us. There's internet law, there's eBay law, there's law that governs commercial transactions. If you have interaction with a credit card company and you challenge a payment on it, they actually have legal procedures that govern that. It doesn't just come out of the state legislature. Those are lawmaking and law enforcing bodies. And the key to be free... He says "Is a liberty to dispose and order as he lists, that means as he desires, his person, that S should be missing, actions, possessions, and his whole property within the allowance of those laws under which he is, and therein not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but freely follow his own. So a defining characteristic of a lack of freedom is being subject to arbitrary power. To be free is to be subject to the law, the same law for everyone. Not different laws for different people based on color, religion, or status, but a common law, and no one is above the law, and no one is subject to arbitrary power from another person. If we think about property, this is another quick clarification. In contemporary English, it has shrunk in meaning to mean this. We say, this is my property. John Locke would never have said that would have been a barbarism. He would have said, I have a property in this clicking thing. That's much more sophisticated language. Lawyers here know property refers to a bundle of rights. If you have land or a house or anything, you have a bundle of rights, and you might be able to take sticks out of the bundle and sell them to other people. Mineral rights, rights of access. Uh, In my condominium association, I have the rights from the Wall's in. But outside, I'm subject to the condominium association. So for instance, my door has to be painted according to our colors. I I desperately desire to paint a large, psychedelic, multicolored, iridescent dragon on my door, and I'm not allowed to. Because that right is in the condominium association, although it's my door. So property is a bundle of rights. That's what property means. But for Locke, also, it has a broader meaning. It means life, liberty, and estate. You have a property in your life, a property in your liberty, and a property in your estate. That's this thing, is estate, your stuff. Modern English has shrunk down property to mean stuff, but the wider meaning is life, liberty, and estate, and property is property in your estate much more sophisticated language that captures what we're about. And it avoids this sort of dumb mistake of some of our friends on the left who say, well, you believe in property rights and I believe in human rights. I'm better than you are. They don't understand what property rights mean is human rights. The right to your life, which is what they mean by human rights. The right to your freedom and the right to your stuff. Those are human rights. It's not that this clicker has rights. I, or the appropriate owner of it, has rights, have rights with regard to it. Now, the key question, if we want to talk about the emergence of liberty, is how do you limit power? That's a big problem. It's really the hardest problem in political science. So let's look at a couple of quick examples from history. And the first story I know of, of the idea of checks and balances of setting one power against another in order to, to be able to realize your freedom is from this Epic of Gilgamesh. And the story is about this man, Gilgamesh. If you can see what he's holding in his arms, he's walking in. What does he have in each hand? Can anyone identify what those are? They're cats, but they're a very special kind of cat. They're lions. Exactly. So, if you, uh, by the way, do not do this to my cats either because they will claw you to pieces, But Um, These are lions. What does this tell you? This is a propaganda poster. (laughs) He's a very tough man. He's a great king. He holds a lion in each hand. So this is a very powerful propaganda image. He was not powerful, superb, knowledgeable, and expert, and not unknown among holders of executive power. He would not leave the young girls alone. Daughters of warriors, the brides of young men, the interns at the White House. (laughs) The gods often heard their complaints. Now, specifically, the power he exercised was on the wedding night of a young couple, he slept with the bride. And everyone here is a grown-up. They didn't really sleep together. So he didn't say, I'm sleepy. Let's go to bed now. So we know... He raped these young women. This is rape. And he had the power, as alpha male, we could put it in that terms, of raping on the wedding night every young woman on her wedding night. This is a very powerful form of predatory male domination. A, he gets sex. B, he gets to humiliate everyone else. And he gets to say to every other man, your wife was hot. So just think about that kind of power to humiliate the whole public. And it says the gods heard their complaints. And one god in particular, Aruru, fashions a natural man, this man, Enkidu, out of some grass and some clay and so on. She makes this natural man. It's a wonderful story, by the way, really worth reading. For God like Gilgamesh, an equal match was found. He goes to the city, they have many interesting adventures, and he blocks him at the door of the father-in-law, where the woman is waiting to be raped by the king. And he says he would not allow Gilgamesh to enter. He says, by what right do you enter here? And he says, I'm Gilgamesh. I'm the king. I'm a great and powerful man. I carry around two lions. Well, they fight, neither one can defeat the other one. They leave the city. They have many interesting uh, uh, adventures. It is a really uh, extraordinary tale. But the story is, you need a power to check another power. To be subject to the arbitrary, unlimited power of a man is unbearable. You need to have someone else to check him. And therefore, for God, like Gilgamesh, an equal match was found. by the way, after Enkidu dies and Gilgamesh comes back, they become friends and so on. Uh, He comes back to the city of Uruk and the walls have grown taller and the city is more magnificent. And I think there's a subtle message. This was in the absence of the king. And there's a a message there that the king may not be so important for uh, prosperity. We can move forward to uh, Sumeria and the first written expression of liberty in any language is Omoji. and I actually checked with the Department of Sumerology at the Útvaros Lorántúr Manyajitam in Budapest, where they have one of the finest Sumerology departments. Uh, to, before I had this tattooed, I just I wanted to check. It doesn't <laughs> say "kick me" or something like that in Sumerian. And they said, yeah, it it means liberty. It's a very robust sense of individual liberty, to be a free person. It comes from a return to the mother. It's a compound noun. And it's an interesting puzzle why. Some people have suggested that because it was a matrilineal society, if you were enslaved, you entered the house of your master. And if you were liberated, you returned to your family, which meant to return to the mother. It's a plausible theory, but... It's hard to know, but it's the the most plausible theory why return to the mother means freedom, to be a free person. But the story of uruk which was discovered in Lagash, which is the contemporary town of Tello in Iraq, on some stele by French archeologists. The story of the establishment of the freedom of the citizens, It's a really quite remarkable story of establishing a rule of law, limitation on taxes, elimination of monopolies, protection of property, and so on. And a kind of early libertarian tax revolt, if you will. And it's really quite a moving story. You can find it in various different forms in translation. Unfortunately, they were conquered uh, after this experience of Rukagina's reforms by the uh, wonderfully named um, Sargon of Akkad, who established the first real powerful empire in the area. Just the name Sargon, it sounds like a Flash Gordon movie from the 1930s, very sinister and terrible. And he was quite a terrible warlord. But here we have this idea of liberty, the first time we see it written in any language. We can fast forward to another story, because these earlier ones are somewhat lost. Uh, there are memories of them in various literature, but the full poems are not rediscovered till later. Uh, we can look again to the people of Israel, And the story in which they say, they go to Samuel, they say, your sons do not walk in your ways. They had judges. He was a judge of Israel, not a king. And his sons were corrupt in some fashion. So they say, give us a king. And Samuel prays to the Lord and asks for guidance. And uh, God says, all right, this is the deal. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. The idea of the higher law, if you will. This is the way of the king who shall rule over him, over them. And it's a long list. He will take your sons to run before your, his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and maids. He will take this. He will take that. And in that day, you shall be his slaves. And when you cry out, the Lord God will not hear you because of the king you have chosen. It's a very powerful warning being, about being subject to arbitrary power. And it is quoted over and over for thousands of years, including in Thomas Paine's Common Sense, the book that initiated the war for independence of the American colonies. He cites this. It's a very, very powerful message about the dangers of being subject to arbitrary power. Now, we can skip forward a bit further. I'm skipping quite lightly over the surface. These are just some highlights. We could spend hours and hours and days and days on any one element. Look at Greek civilization, and in particular, Athens, the one that we would really associate uh, most highly with liberty and high Greek culture. Uh, About 500 uh, BC, this became a very wealthy city based on trade, uh, astonishing uh, trading network throughout the Aegean and the Mediterranean, and a very high degree of personal liberty. This is one of the things we find is that mercantile cities, cities based on commerce and trade, develop personal independence and liberty. Uh, to a very, very high degree, and really quite remarkable a civilization. Women also have a much higher status than they do in other societies. I think this is a fairly good uh, marker for these things. Uh, Women, we don't want to be overly uh, romantic about this matter. They were not equal citizens. They were not citizens at all, could not vote. But women had their own intellectual life. There were salons run by women. Uh, Socrates' teacher, Diotima, was a woman, for example. Uh, So they had a much higher uh, status than in most of the other civilizations around them. Now, there were two invasions of Greece by the great Persian empire, this enormous land empire, roughly Iran and surrounding areas, uh, and very expansionist. And they had conquered the Greek cities of Ionia, Turkey, we could say, Anatolia, and so on, and uh, were moving into Europe, into Greece, and assembled massive armies. And twice they were driven back. And there are various uh, portrayals of this in popular culture. I will warn you about one the movie 300, if anyone has seen that, is a, a dreadfully bad movie, in my opinion. It was inaccurate in every detail, except there were 300 of them. Uh, Everything else is wrong. And I have to say, I'm not the most sensitive person in the world about this. It was, I think, one of the most racist movies I've seen in all my life. It was uh, just astonishing because all the Greeks are rugged Englishmen and Englishwomen and they're beautiful white people. And all of the other side are dark, uh, evil, despicable, and Asiatic. And I was just struck by the the uh, repulsive racism of the movie. So I, I hate that film. Uh, so I don't, don't, don't watch that to get your image of it. There are much, much better uh, versions of this in popular culture. But they are repelled twice. The Greeks of the uh, Greek mainland fought extraordinarily bravely. And then it led to a question, what were they fighting for? The Persians offered quite reasonable terms. If you submitted to them, you got a Persian governor, a military contingent in the city, and you paid some taxes, and you went on. And then you're part of the great Persian Empire. Life's okay. If you fought them and were defeated, it was very bad for you. They were, would destroy everything. Uh, enslave the whole population into all kinds of uh, degraded forms, including being effectively sex slaves so that your wives and daughters and mothers are going to be uh, brutalized and raped uh, and your city would be razed to the ground and all the men who were not killed would be carted off to uh, die in the mines. But the Greeks fought and it led to a great flourishing of culture. What was it we were fighting for? And you get from this period all of these wonderful poems and plays that are meditations on what is law. Think about the Oresteia. Think about Aeschylus and so on. What is law? What is freedom? What is justice? And so it's an enormous um, uh, upwelling of culture that comes out of this. Later, a great war between Sparta and Athens is another occasion to think about liberty. The Spartans, as in this horrible, despicable movie I mentioned, are portrayed as wonderful, brave people, defenders of everything good and noble and true. And the Athenians, most philosophers, have looked down on them. Most philosophers have loved the Spartans, Plato, Socrates, um, uh, Rousseau, one of the most despicable human beings who ever lived, in my opinion. loved the Spartans and hated the Athenians. The Athenians were business people. They were merchants. They allowed foreigners. They allowed metics, who basically was a green card holder. Um, they had resident foreigners in their city. Aristotle was not Athenian. He was from Stagira. So he's often referred to in the medieval literature as the Stagirite. means Aristotle of Stagira. And uh, when these two powers clashed, there was an occasion to ask what was at stake. And Thucydides, in his history of the Peloponnesian War, and the many speeches that he reconstructs or makes up, it's a little hard to know, but there are many wonderful, brilliant speeches uh, in it. Pericles' funeral oration, he compares Sparta with Athens. And in Athens, each one of our citizens is able to show himself the rightful lord and owner of his own person. We discuss things before we commit to battle. We are not afraid to talk things over first. We have many resident foreigners. Our city is open to the world. We do not have the deportations of our enemies. This is something to think about today, whether our society is slipping a bit more towards Sparta because of the excessive fear of terrorism, uh, turning us, closing us off from the world. But it's a beautiful meditation of what it means to be a free person and to live in in a free city. Uh, that emerges from this, and Andrew Colson, one of our colleagues at Cato, has a wonderful book on the history of education, and he puts it very nicely. Uh, Sparta had compulsory state education, if you will, for Spartan citizens. Uh, Athens did not. Education in Athens was private on the market. You paid for it. People educated their children. And he says, so we can just look at these two and think about it. What did we get from Athens? Well, we get music, philosophy, astronomy, arithmetic, geometry, um, architecture, philosophy, tragedy, comedy, poetry. And from Sparta, we get, uh, and then he concludes, the names of a lot of American high school football teams. (laughs) Their some contribution to human culture uh, was they fought. They were warriors. That was what they did. They were warriors. And the Athenians were the ones who really bequeathed to us a high culture. Let's skip ahead to the Roman Republic, which is also very important, and this will be very significant for the American constitutional founding. Um, the monarchy was overthrown about 510 B.C. Uh, they eliminated a great many of the hereditary privileges, eliminated dead slavery, and created a republic res publica, the public thing. The Roman constitution is this extraordinarily complicated body. You're acquainted with at least some elements of it. The different consuls and praetors and tribunes, all these different offices, each one with certain powers, authorities, and immunities. The Roman law, very complicated body. One way to understand it is it made it difficult for anyone to achieve absolute power. It was an anti-monarchy device. It was a device to install gridlock. Anytime we hear people complain in Washington, oh, they can't get anything done. That's the point. (laughs) It really is the point. It should be difficult, for example, to commit the nation to war, which is why the American founders put that power in the hands of the Congress, not the president. It has been usurped by the president. And this president and others have said, I can take us to war anytime I want for any reason I want. But the Constitution doesn't say that. They wanted it to be difficult. There had to be deliberation and debate. And the Roman Constitution sets up a complicated system of government that was there to install gridlock as opposed to what we today would call dictatorship or they would have called a tyranny. Now that republic lasts a long time. It finally is destroyed, but we should remember the Roman Republic lasted substantially longer than the American Republic has lasted. So anyone who thinks, oh, well, that failed, uh, should remember it lasted a long time and who knows how long our republic will last. Nothing lasts forever and maybe at some point it too will collapse. Uh, is destroyed largely because of the political power struggles among various elites. It's a very complicated story and many theories about it. We could date the real end of the Republic to this year, and that is Cato the Younger had led the troops at the Battle of Thapsus against Julius Caesar, and he committed suicide. He would not be pardoned by Caesar. Caesar was going to come and pardon him, which would have eliminated his, his power, if you will his moral authority. And Cato said, I will not do this. And he asked for his sword. It's a very moving story in Plutarch's life. And fell on it. And then when the doctors came in, he ripped open his own viscera to make sure he would expire. He wanted to make it clear the Republic has just been destroyed by Julius Caesar. And set up a very powerful figure as a figure of Republican liberty and constitutionalism that inspired people for thousands of years after that. His friend and colleague, Marcus Tullius Cicero, was murdered. He had been pardoned by Julius Caesar. And then finally, when Augustus Caesar, after Julius was assassinated, partly by the son-in-law of Cato the Younger, uh, Octavian comes in as the heir to Julius, takes power, makes a deal with Mark Antony, and part of the deal with Mark Antony was, I'll let you kill Cicero. Even though uh, Octavian or, or Caesar Augustus didn't like the idea because Cicero was his friend, that was politics at the time. So he was uh, murdered. And his uh, head and hands were displayed in the forum. And the malicious wife of Mac- Mark Antony went up and pulled the tongue and plucked, uh, pushed her silver hairpin through the tongue So he would never speak against her husband again. Uh, Talk about petty. Um, But he left us many important uh, stories and messages. He was the finest writer of Latin. And because of this, his works were copied over and over. So we have huge amounts of of his writing, more than any other person of the period. We have only one letter of Cato. We have volumes and volumes of Cicero partly because he wrote so many uh, letters to his friend, Atticus, who lived in Athens, and those were preserved in Athens, but also his other books were such beautiful Latinity that people copied them to learn Latin all the way through the high Middle Ages. And he transmitted many of the doctrines of the higher law to the modern era. We know a lot about classical philosophy because of this man, because of the accident that people copied his books because he wrote well, including this idea of the higher law. And there are certain passages that you find repeated all through the high Middle Ages up to the modern era about the higher law and about treating other people with respect and not acting violently against them, about the value of of peaceful relations. Now, that world came to an end. The classical world ends. And a new world is created. We call this <clears throat> the High Middle Ages, and had the Germans having come in, the Roman Empire having collapsed, Christianity having arisen. So a lot of things happened. I'm going to skip over. I'm going to talk about this important year. A German monk, this man, Hildebrand, becomes Pope Gregory Seventh, and he revolutionizes the world. He establishes the independence of the church from the political body. Prior to that time, what we today call church and state, were constantly intertwined. Bishops would exercise what we consider political authority, and political figures, kings, and so on, would exercise religious authority. This man changed that in the Latin West and instituted the great reformation of the church. In 1075, he sent a letter to Henry IV of Saxony, the German emperor, and he said... It's a very complicated document. It's not clear if it's a letter or a list or how it came into his hand, but it's a list of claims. The Roman bishop alone is the head of the church. He has the right to install bishops with their authority. And This is a very important struggle called the investiture crisis in which the German emperors had said, I get to name the bishops in Germany. And This man, Hildebrand, says, nope. That's my job. I name the bishops, not the German emperor. This is very important because it's a struggle over power and wealth. The church has become very wealthy at this time. Property rights are becoming more secure, a lot more economic activity, partly because of the church's activities. And so there's a lot of wealth at stake. And Gregory institutes reformation of the church. He challenges the pope. They have a kind of intellectual duel. And finally, the the Pope receives Emperor Henry IV of Saxony, who came before him to beg his forgiveness and be readmitted into the communion of the church. Now, it's not just because he had moral authority. There's also a Norman army just camped nearby. They were hiking in the woods and so on. Uh, Notice the date 1077... This is 11 years after his predecessor had supported the Norman claim to the Kingdom of England, and they kept balance sheets and said, you owe us. And so the Normans lent an army to the struggle with the German emperor. So it's a complicated story. But what it established was really important, that power is not singular. Remember I mentioned last night powers instead of power? There's a big crack in power. There's the church, and there's these... Secular authorities, as the term comes to be, the secular, the worldly authorities. And from that crack emerge many others. People could run from one side to the other if they're being oppressed. And among these, very significantly, is the emergence of independent cities in Europe, or communes. These are extremely important. Civil liberty emerges in the communes, in civil society. This is the map of Cologne uh, from a book I, I took on a trip to Cologne many years ago, uh, Cologne in the 16th Century. It's a great guidebook. Guide the restaurant guide's a little out of date, but otherwise quite good. And um, <clears throat> uh, it grew initially here in the portus. It was a Roman city that was abandoned. Merchants came here, started setting up their tables to sell stuff. Customers come. More customers means more merchants. More merchants means more customers. They built a fort around themselves, which is currently being excavated. If you go to Cologne, you can see the archaeological digs, and it's near the the dome, the cathedral, and then across the square is the Romisch-Germanisches Museum, the Roman-Germanic Museum. And they create, eventually, an independent city-state of a sort. They have an archbishop, but in 1396, he's kicked out. And the, the archbishop of Cologne is by law not allowed to live in Cologne. He was booted out when the brief, it was called, was uh, circulated by the free citizens. This is the principle of this, the free cities of Europe. City air makes you free after the lapse of a year and a day. If you can run away from your feudal lord, go to the city, hang out for one year, And one day, going from one Starbucks to the next, you become a free person. And there are many, many examples in European history of lords coming to demand someone, and the citizens say, back off. This person is now a citizen. He's been here a year and a day. I was in Tallinn, and the medieval city there is really spectacular. There are two walls, the aristocratic city up here and the city of the citizens, the burghers, Its wall is to protect them from the aristocrats. And there were occasions when aristocrats would chase a serf into the city, be captured by the local people charged with kidnapping and executed. Because they said, he's in the city, he's a free person. And they hung uh, nobles for having done that. From this, we get this movement in which Life is determined by contract rather than status. Sir Henry Sumner-Main put it very neatly. The movement from status to contract is the movement to a free society. My relations with other people are based on my choice, not on my birth, that I'm born a slave or or an aristocrat, but rather I'm born a free person and I create the relations I want with other people. In English, we have a rather rich language because it's a, a squishing together of two languages, Latin-derived French and Anglo-Saxon. So from Latin, we get civil, civil society from civitas, but it also means a mode of behavior, not merely a place, but uh, a way of treating other people. And Latin, unlike English, Latin and Greek distinguish when they talk about a city between the place and the uh, association. So civitas is the association, urb means the place. In in English, we can't say that. If I say New York City, do I mean the place or the city of New York, the government? It's not clear, I have to specify in English. And in Latin, I don't, and similarly in Greek, it's polis and astu. Polis refers to the association and laws of the people. So we get civil, mode of behavior, civil behavior, You go to England, you hear mothers say to their unruly children, be civil. It's a wonderful phrase. There's so much in that phrase. It's also accompanied by uh, they hit them on the top of their head with their index fingers, which makes a large popping sound. It must be staggeringly painful. Uh, But it it makes the children civil. Uh, It means be polite and respectful of others. That's civil behavior. It doesn't mean be everyone's friend. It means be respectful. But from German, a burg means a fortified place, a strong place. Uh, a burg is meant like a kind of a castle, if you will, a place of refuge. And from that we get Hamburg, Pittsburgh, Hillsborough comes from that. Bourgeois, French people have a, a well-known genetic defect, they cannot pronounce German words. So, so bürgerlich turns into bourgeois, and then that comes into English as a t- term of contempt, by the way, typically in English. But even the House of Burgesses, the oldest representative body in the United States, you can feel that, that meaning refers to the, the medieval cities, the Burgs, and German, the Bürger is a, a citizen. At about the same time this is happening, you get the written charters of privileges and immunities. So Magna Carta 1215, I was talking to one of the participants earlier. No free man shall be taken, imprisoned, or disased, means have your stuff taken, outlawed, banished, or in any way destroyed. Nor will we proceed against him or prosecute him except by the lawful judgment of his peers. That's trial by jury. That's in the American Constitution. That's where that comes from. Or by the law of the land. Due process of law are traced back in the American Constitution to these documents. But they're not just English. The English are very proud of Magna Carta. And sometimes you'll hear them say, oh, other nations didn't have anything like it. Although, if you go to Runnymede, look at the monument to Magna Carta. It's built by the American Bar Association, just to let you in on that. But this is actually a European-wide phenomenon. It was happening all over Europe about the same time. Limits on the powers of kings, early forms of constitutional restrictions and bills of rights that are happening all across Europe. They persist in England. So England is very special in this regard, partly because after the Spanish Armada, there are no more serious attempts to invade them. They're not conquered, unlike much of continental Europe, which which is subject to periodic conquests and all the bad things that come with that. The doctrine of the individual rights is emerging at about the same time and these are parallel movements no one is the one cause of liberty these are all contributing features in innocent the fourth in a famous decision about the crusades he says that infidels muslims and jews have rights and that's a very important point we know in practice less respected than in theory but he established very prin- importantly He said, rights are not only for the faithful, namely his fellow Christians, but for every rational creature, including the Muslims and the Jews and anyone else. They didn't know about Hindus and Buddhists at the time. But the principle is they are human beings. You may not take from them their stuff, their lives, their freedom, their jurisdiction, which means their political independence, unless you're defending yourself from them. Then it's different but you have no right to aggress against them. We see the idea of individual rights, Marsilius of Padua, some years later, articulates the idea of dominium, referring to the human will. Human beings, rational creatures, have mastery of their own behavior. Sovereignty of the person, not of the state, if you will, one way to think about it. These are contributing to this doctrine of individual rights. Those theories are then applied and radicalized and purified when the Spaniards come in contact with these strange creatures in the New World who are like barbarians. They call them Indians. And you talk to them and they they don't make any sense. They can't speak Spanish. So some said, well, they're here for us to enslave. And others, this great man, a great proto-libertarian, Francisco de Vitoria, he says they have free will, master of their own actions. By natural law, every man has the right to his own life and to physical and mental integrity. Mental integrity means no forced conversions. And you'll notice he is a church man. He's a priest. And he said to force someone to accept the Christian faith is a sin. It is a sin of violence. And you force him to commit the sin of hypocrisy because he only confesses his Christianity out of fear, not out of belief. It's a very clever move to try to defend the rights of the Indians uh, not to be coercively uh, baptized. And then this great man, Bartolome de las Casas, who had gone to the Americas as an adventurer, and he saw horrific crimes committed against indigenous people. And he documented these. He was converted by an itinerant priest who said, you know this is wrong, and really uh, changed his heart. And he dedicated his life to defending the rights of the indigenous peoples uh, against forced conversion, against murder and torture and enslavement. And in his, i it's a media thing. In his um, debate with Juan Guinness de Sepulveda, he effectively destroyed him uh, in 1550. And that book is certainly still available uh, was one of the great statements of uh, the principles of individual liberty and a statement against slavery. We can move ahead institutionally. That's a bit of intellectual history. The Dutch are great heroes in the struggle for liberty. Again, they're commercial people. They trade. They're the pioneers of, of um, religious toleration. College professors throughout the ages who have want to take credit for religious toleration do not believe them. Most intellectuals have been advocates of oppression. Why? Because they know what's true. Why should they let other people say things that are wrong? It's business people who understand it doesn't matter what the person thinks outside of this relationship. They're customers. And if you shoot them, you'll lose money. And that motivation is really powerful for developing a tolerant, free society. John Lathrop, uh, uh, Morley put it very neatly, he saw the revolutions in England, in Holland, England, the United States, as part of a chain of liberal or free revolutions. In England, the English, when the stewards come to power, in 1603, they have this absolute monarch, he says, I'm the boss, you don't matter, I'm above the law, and the English say, well, we're not so sure about that. And their great uh, figure, Sir Edward Cook, defended the supremacy of the law above king and parliament. The common law was supreme, not will. And the English uh, revolt against uh, their king. There's a great English civil war. And in it, the first real libertarians, the levelers, this was initially an insulting term, these people were radicals. They were believed in the full libertarian a set of views, property, free trade, trial by jury, equal rights for everyone, religious toleration. And indeed, they were so hardcore, they believed something that even today some people have difficulty with. They believed even Irish people have rights. (laughs) Right? Which is a very difficult pill for the English uh, to swallow. But the famous occasion in Burford, if you go to Burford in England, you can see The church there where Levellers were imprisoned, and on the baptismal font it says Anthony Sedley Prisoner, 1649, scratched into it. They were shot because they said we will not fight the Irish. We will not wage cruel war and persecution over matters of conscience. The Irish being Catholic, the Levellers and the English dominant English parties at this time were Protestant, And they said, we will not do it, and we are free men. You cannot force us to commit an injustice. We will die first before we do what we know to be wrong. So these are really great heroes of liberty. This man in particular, John Lilburn, we owe the right to trial by jury to him. Uh, He dedicated his whole life, as these other gentlemen did, and ladies also. There were women levelers, a very interesting phase in the development of modern politics. It infuriated their opponents. How dare women, women, raise their shrill voices, unless she's the queen, in which case she must give her absolute obedience, which is an incoherence. But they wanted women to shut up, but there were many women levelers, including uh, the wife, Elizabeth, of uh, John Lilburn. John Locke, the figure we know better, he was influenced by the levelers, but never acknowledged them, Many of the Levellers were executed, so this was a highly risky thing to do. Uh, and also, he had Leveller pamphlets in his library, but by the way, he never acknowledged the authorship of the two treatises. They did not appear under his name in his lifetime. They were published anonymously, although there was a letter to his nephew recommending them as the finest works for instruction in political science. But... Uh, Uh, He clearly was influenced by the levelers and articulated these ideas into a full theory of limited government. Skipping ahead, I want to mention a very important figure from France, the great Turgot, who uh, abolished forced labor in France. He was a finance minister. Uh, He was trying to lead France towards a free trade, more English model of a limited constitutional monarchy and personal freedom. He failed but he was a great friend of the American colonists and corresponded with uh, the American colonists. As he said here, limited government was to be the key to American success. Uh, uh, Turgot. No, not Trudeau, a very different man. Turgot. Yes, Trudeau uh, had a rather different version. Uh, The Americans, what I'm really leading up to in some sense is that the American founders drew on this great tradition. They didn't just invent it all. They had all of this behind them and established a remarkable nation with the claim, all men are created equal. A very bold radical claim that we know was not realized at the time. It was far more aspirational, if you will. <clears throat> As uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, put it very neatly to Henry Lee, it was not to find new principles or new arguments never before thought of, right, but to place before mankind the common sense of the subject in terms so firm and pl- uh, plain and firm as to command their assent. So he's, he did not have any text in front of him, he did not write anything, copy anything, but you can hear these voices speaking through his text. And Randy Barnett will walk us through the declaration. Well, with, with that, I want to conclude. My goal was to bring you up to that period, and much more able hands, Rob McDonald and Randy Barnett will explain from that point forward. So thank you very much.) <laughs> we have time for maybe two um, uh, points to be raised. Yes, sir.
1: Tom, thanks so very much for this. I'm trying to better understand exactly what you mean or all the possible interpretations of discovering the law. Three possible meanings that come to my mind are one, discovering what people think the law should be, Mm -hmm. two, uh, discovering how people actually interact with and self-organize, interact with each other, and three, discovering what would be most efficient or effective as the law. It's two. Okay, all right. (laughs) Uh, That's good. Um, (laughs) uh, If I may, a couple of thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. Two things I can imagine make it harder to discover the law. One is regulation because it prohibits them from trying things that would reveal how they would Mm self-organize. And two, uh, actually this would be in a different sense of... of, uh, and that it would keep us from discovering what is most efficient or effective, and that is there's a single large geographical government that uh, doesn't allow for lots of trials to be going on in parallel. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's a question, in this day and age of big data, would it make sense to deliberately do experiments or other form of research to discover the law? And, And finally, an economist that I like a lot, my friend Brian Arthur of the Santa Fe Institute, whom I would call Schumpeterian, if not libertarian, uh, suggests uses agent-based modeling to discover which of two sets of rules for security trading would have the fewest unintended consequences. What, what are your thoughts?
0: Well, you have raised about seven things. So <laughs> um, the first point about law, it doesn't mean that there can be no legal innovation. One of the nice things about contract law is people can come up with new contracts. That people hadn't thought of before. And that's how contract law evolves. So there's a place there for discovery of new forms of legal ordering. You're not just set in a certain number of categories. A lot of law is dead. Well, all kinds of things that are possibilities that now we're seeing in all kinds of uh, new kinds of electronic markets and so on that people hadn't, just couldn't have anticipated. The key is to have a competitive process so that we can try what works. And if there's some contractual relationship that generates big agent principle problems or other issues, well, people will learn from that. They'll either adapt it or they'll abandon it and try something else. So it doesn't mean that it's just a conservative force. It has a certain conservative conservatism to it, but it can adapt and change. Now, the question of finding out best methods of ordering things, I'm all in favor of that kind of Research agenda. What I don't like, and I think we'd be on the same page, is giving someone the dictatorial power to impose that model on us. That's a big mistake because then you have the problem of, well, what if you got the wrong one? And now we're all stuck with the same thing. So I like, uh, I prefer having multiple competing and overlapping legal jurisdictions, which to a substantial degree we have right now. Right? Law is not the monolithic system that many people think it is. You have choice of law. You can do your incorporation in Delaware. Delaware has well-trained judges who understand commercial law, who didn't start out on the parking ticket bench, but they actually know about business. They're well-trained, highly paid, and they have a very simple legal registration system. So companies register in Delaware. So we already have a substantial degree of Competition and the provision uh, of law and law enforcement mechanisms. I would like to see more of that. And I would also like to get rid of certain things that have crept into the law that I think have made it difficult for people to uh, uh, consummate transactions. For instance, the doctrine of unconscionability, I think, is a big problem in law. Because it, the assumption is anytime there's an asymmetry in knowledge, for example, between two parties, you can't have a fair contract. And that has been a big problem in things like medical malpractice law and so on. People cannot contract for risk. Uh, The question of how to get out of those problems, sometimes you might need a legislative response, uh, such as tort reform, or uh, might be a possibility to deal with this, that the courts have somehow gone off track, partly led by legislatures and unwise rules regarding liability. Those issues are complicated, and I don't have a lot more to say about it. Uh, But the key is law is not just the command of the guy with a stick. It's It's something that has to do with finding the rules that allow us to live together peacefully and bring about mutually beneficial exchanges. That's really what law should be about. And it's not how it's normally seen by politicians or armchair philosophers who think law is about You and me figuring out what's best and then imposing on the rest of these dumb schmucks. Thank you. Yes, sir.
1: Uh, Well, thank you again for your uh, your talk. You uh, spoke about uh, freedom in a historical sense and uh, sort of leading up to principles which uh, exist in the present. But I guess I would say, uh, what do you see as the greatest obstacles for future freedom?
0: It's a really big question. Well, we're out of time, Uh, that's the biggest one, and I I promised, but I'll I'll just say the world is a big complicated place and there would be different answers to that question in different countries to begin with. If you're concerned about the United States, um, I do think that the extraordinarily primitive mentality that criminalizes everything, this just has to be overturned. Everything is being criminalized now. And the number of federal crimes has gone from a fairly small category. It's just ballooned. There are thousands of them. And the mentality is, don't like it? Hurt those people. Hurt them. Put them in prison. No matter who they are, just imprison them. And that mentality really is extremely destructive to liberty. There are lots of ways of changing behavior without using brutal force on people. But people like President Obama, he doesn't understand that. If I don't like what you're doing, I should send in the people to beat you up, put handcuffs on you, and put you in a cage like a gerbil. That's his understanding of law. And that, I think, is one of the biggest obstacles to liberty. The other one is the potential for war. And I do think that we need to return the war-making authority to the Congress. To me, this is really imperative, not to be able to commit the country to war without a Congress acting and I think that would have knock on positive effects on the excessive surveillance state that we're witnessing. But we're over time by, by 27 seconds. Not good. Thank you very much.